0: assalamu alaikum may the peace that only god can give be upon you welcome to radio islam this is your host tariq el and we are broadcasting on wceb 1450 a.m and we are streaming at wceb1450.com. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome. We invite you to follow us on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And also take a moment to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours at. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn and anywhere else that you might get yours. Look for us once again at Radio Islam USA. All right, uh, Radio Sound family, we've got a really uh, interesting, interesting conversation uh, that we're going to get into today. Now, you may be familiar with the term uh, Internet of Things devices. You may have heard that said uh, you may, you may not. Uh, but with refrigerators, oven ranges, thermostats, doorbells and home security systems and, you know, in any other uh, device that you might think of, uh, that are now able to connect to your home Wi-Fi networks, there's a very real possibility of having one of those items being used as an entryway for hackers into your home network, right? So this is uh, an increased probability now with where we are now. So uh, recently, the state of California passed legislation on Internet of Things devices. And joining us on the phone is Jason Taché. Uh, who covered this in the American Bar Association Journal, uh, which is uh, online. And I want to bring him on, but first I'll let you know a little bit about him. Uh, He is a legal affairs writer uh, who joined the ABA Journal in 2017, and his writing focuses on how technology and data affect the legal system. Uh, He also teaches a uh, course titled Criminal Justice Technology Policy and Law at Georgetown Law Center in Washington, D.C. Uh, And he's also the founder and director Of justice codes and legal Uh, so this is um you know someone who is deeply uh, embedded and well qualified to speak to this and we're happy to welcome him to Radio Islam how are you doing Jason
1: I'm doing well thank you for having me
0: yes yes so this is a you know this is probably not something that um, I think that we think too deeply about on a consumer level Um, you know we have Uh, a washing machine that can now connect to to Wi-Fi, you know, that you can, you know, you can start from your phone and you, you know, you just think, wow, this is really convenient. Uh, But there, there's a lot more to this. But before we get into that, could you first kind of give us an overview of this uh, particular legislation that just passed?
1: Sure. So this uh, bill was signed by California Governor Jerry Brown uh, earlier this year in September. And the idea is, is that come January 1st, 2020, Uh, Any IOT device, so that's for household, that's for industry uh, sold in California, needs to have what the law calls reasonable security features, um, which sounds a little bit amorphous, and I think that's intentional, but there's two major components that all IOT devices are going to need uh, if they're going to be legally sold in the state of California. And it's either they need to have a unique password that comes from the manufacturer itself, Mm-hmm. Or the device needs to require the user to create a password before they use the device, mm-hmm. and this is intended to protect all stored and transmitted data used by any IoT um, technology.
0: All right, and and just re-emphasizing for those who may not be familiar with that that uh, uh, that abbreviation there, that uh, an acronym, that IoT Internet of Things. Which uh, when I when I read the piece, I was like, wow, because I, I hadn't heard of IoT. Um, but is this law in response to a growing public concern, uh, the end user? uh, Or is this primarily due to, you know, kind of forecasting the uh, security probabilities or deficiencies in these particular uh, devices?
1: I think it's a mix of these things uh, you see growing public concern about how companies are using and protecting our data i mean we just saw another headline this week about facebook yeah. and how they have been sharing user data with other major technology companies uh, and so people are becoming more savvy they're beginning to think more critically about these issues when before i think people wouldn't have given it much of a second thought um but there there's the corollary that These devices, uh, and as you point out, we're talking about basically anything that connects to the Internet or has a Bluetooth connection, uh, are prolific now. There's over 7 billion Internet of Things devices around the world, and that number is expected to triple by 2025, according to some estimates. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of these devices, it turns out, were being released into the market without any level of security. I think it's all pretty straightforward for us today to have a four-number password on our phones or to have a lock screen on our laptop computers, but these devices didn't have anything of the sort. And so they became uh, pretty easy prey for hackers looking to be able to create what's called a botnet, where you take a lot of devices that you take over uh, by hacking them and then turning their attention against uh, websites that you want to crash or or companies that you want to cause trouble for. Uh, and so this was happening more and more recently over the last number of years, and so that's a part of the reason why we see a state like California becoming interested in legislating on this issue. Hmm.
0: So I understand it on a on a on a larger scale for the the corporate scale, you know, having uh, Amazon servers or Netflix or Sony, you know, having their servers go down on them because it, because of uh, an intrusion. Um, but what would that mean on a You know just an individual level individual consumer for their Wi-Fi networks for their data how how does that how does that look
1: sure so say you have a device that you get for Christmas this year without a password on it uh, and you connect it uh, and it's just sitting on your network uh, without any form of security on it Mm -hmm. and so uh, what we see them being most commonly used for uh, by hackers are what's called a denial-of-service attack or a DDoS attack. Mm-hmm. And the idea here is, is that if you get millions of these devices all under your control um, in this thing called a botnet, then you can point their attention towards uh, a particular server or website that you want to take down. This happened. A, a large-scale version of this happened in 2016 where um, a website called DIN, uh, which helps register web domain names was attacked in this manner. And what ends up happening is those devices then just start sending essentially digital gibberish at the website until it overloads and crashes. And so that ended up affecting, as you point out, a lot of major technology companies in the northeast of the U.S. and other regions uh, around the country.
0: Hmm. So uh, this, this, is one, this is one face of, um, I guess, regulation, uh, that's also related to, to law enforcement. Um, but how does this how, how does this work in tandem with um, you know your local law enforcement uh, and, and their ability to to enforce maybe intrusions right now? not necessarily um, not necessarily not having the passwords and, and such on these devices but when an intrusion actually occurs are, are our law enforcement, Uh, agencies on a local level do you think that they're situated in a way to be able to to respond to those types of um, uh, activities
1: that's a really good question and and the question and the answer is it depends Mm -hmm. there are uh, an estimated 19,000 law enforcement agencies in the United States and that's from federal all the way down to local and tribal Mm -hmm. Um, and there's going to be different levels of capacity at each one of those levels Um, And this is something that local law enforcement uh, struggles with specifically. Um, As the internet uh, affects more and more aspects of our lives, more crime is shifting onto uh, online uh, opportunities and I think a lot of law enforcement agents, at least the ones that I talk to in the reporting that I've done and the research I've done, indicate that it's been extremely hard to keep up, uh, to keep people trained, uh, to determine how big of, say, a DDoS attack requires uh, local attention. Obviously, for the bigger uh, events that occur uh, that are alleged crimes, the federal uh, authorities will get involved, and they are certainly the most technologically advanced in their ability to investigate crimes like this. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's a struggle. And we even see the feds working to, a few years ago, they actually changed the rules around how they can search during an investigation when it comes to computer crimes like this. Right. So we see the law being uh, as it's supposed to reactive to these changes in technology.
0: All right. Uh, speaking of the law being reactive, uh, have, have laws changed? And maybe, you know, maybe this might be something that would be on a, a state or municipal uh, level, but have have we seen laws that are responding, uh, that are being crafted to address Intrusion on this uh, on on this level, uh, you know, because you know, we we've got unlawful entry, you know, if you if physical, you know, you physically have gone into a place that you know you have no legal right to be in. Um, but do we have uh, do we have a criminal code or laws that reflect this same, you know, this this new reality that we're in?
1: Um, well, it depends exactly what we're talking about, but certainly the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which was passed in the nineteen eighties. Mm-hmm. Uh, still remains one of the biggest uh, components at the federal level in regards to unauthorized access uh, and intrusion uh, using uh, computers. Um, and that's been pretty broadly uh, used mm-hmm. in regards to basically any type of crime uh, or unauthorized access involving a computer. Um, and so that remains the biggest way that the feds uh, usually go after these types of crimes. Um at the state level it's going to vary uh, based on what their local criminal code is and being that uh, and this is something that's often forgotten especially today where we saw Congress pass a major criminal justice reform bill is that the majority, the vast majority of all um, crimes are going to be prosecuted at the local level right. and not at the federal level and so that's a patchwork um, state to state.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Now you, you mentioned uh, that there is, is definitely an uh, to, it seems to be intentional the wording a uh, reasonable security feature uh, that's in the language of that uh, of that law. Um, what's the potential impact of that?
1: So I think there's two reasons why you would the legislature would want to define uh, reasonable security and not provide more specific examples than the two password uh, examples I gave at the top of the the interview. And the first is that you need flexibility to apply this law across different types of Internet of Things devices. Um, If you're thinking about, say, a Wi-Fi connected conveyor belt at an Amazon plant, uh, that probably has a different level of security concerns than, say, a device that a child is meant to play with or a device that's going to be used in a doctor's office. Uh, So it provides flexibility there. What's reasonable at a warehouse is going to be different than what's reasonable in your home as far as security concerns are. are And the second with reasonable is that, as anybody knows, as technology changes, what's reasonable changes along with it. Uh, While today I think a lot of people probably are pretty uh, comfortable or familiar with two-factor authentication, where after you put your password into an account you get a notification to your phone that then confirms you are who you say you are and that you're indeed signing into your account at that time. If five, seven years ago, two-factor authentication was not the standard. It probably would not have been considered reasonable in most cases. Mm. Uh, but times have changed. Uh, the threats that people face to their digital lives have changed as well. And so as those threats morph, our responses morph, and therefore what is reasonable changes as well. Mm.
0: Uh, is there an anticipation or is it already in place, um, resistance from, uh, fr- from manufacturers, resistance from, uh, you know, th- th- those that are manufacturing these products, saying that this puts them in, a, uh, in an undue bind?
1: I haven't seen anything like that. And uh, based on my reporting from what I came up with is that industry and researchers are looking for ways to improve their security already. Um, So there's momentum there. Uh, And so I haven't I haven't seen any large scale uh, industry complaints. The bill kind of passed at a time where the state of California was actually debating a separate consumer data privacy law Mm -hmm. uh, that also passed this past year. And that seemed to take a lot of the attention away from this particular bill, both in the press and in the legislature, uh, just because the scope of the other bill was was much bigger. Um, So perhaps that plays a part as well. But at least for the moment, I don't see a lot of red flags or complaints from industry. All
0: right. Now, you mentioned uh, earlier that, you know, data is uh, the the public's data, our data, that is uh, at the forefront of conversation. Um, You know, recently we had um, uh, one of the uh, leaders from Google uh, that I think was called before the House or was it the Senate? Um, Can't remember which one. But I know, uh, but this has been something that has been, you know, as a part, as a, you know, central to uh, the, the public conversation and, and there's much more awareness about it. But when it comes to these uh, IOT devices, uh, is there, is there a real danger? Uh, I mean, you know, if we're thinking about a washing machine, you know, for example, just throw, throw that out there. Uh, is there a real danger that's behind um, what, what data would be associated with, uh, you know, with the washing machine?
1: Sure. So a, a couple of things. Uh, the, the data that's on there obviously could be taken either when it is uh, stored there or when it's in transit if there's no form of protection uh, mm-hmm. there. But I think probably more specific to, say, the average person is that it could be a foothold into the house network itself. Mm-hmm. So while the washing machine may not be your the place you keep all of your online secrets, it could be a jump off to get into other aspects of the house's network, including computers or, or cell phones or tablets. Um, but as well, like when we talk about IoT devices, we're also talking about things that people's children play with. And I don't think mm. if uh, a parent would really like the idea that the camera or the speaker on the toy that the child got for Christmas is open either to help or hear the child play with this particular toy, um, and so long as there is a lack of security uh, on these devices, those remain very real and possible threats.
0: Mm. Do you think that uh, as uh, technology continues to uh, advance and become more and more integrated into these uh, daily devices that we use, that there's going to uh, that there will come a point, or maybe it's here, and we don't hear as much about it where there becomes this connection between the um, between these devices and also physical actual physical intrusions where these devices are being used as a way for uh, for uh, would-be criminals to you know to actually make their way into businesses into homes on a physical um, uh, on a physical level
1: that's a good question I think especially with the notion of the smart home where we're putting in you know Bluetooth enabled locks or uh, cameras um, or, or we have remoteless entry to our cars. All of these things are new factors to consider in regards to what needs to be held secure. If you think about uh, back in the day when you just had a normal key to open up your car, someone would have had to have gotten that key or broken the lock to get in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is just a different, more digital flavor of that same problem. Um, we even see now there was reporting this year, I believe by USA Today, where uh, there's a tool that people can buy pretty easily on the market where it can scan for the digital fingerprint of a remote access key fob for a car, for example. And so people can go up and down the street, find a copy of that, and then replicate it to get into the car and to to drive off. Um, And so now, I believe experts in that article were recommending that at night, you put your uh, car key fobs in a tin coffee can, uh, to try to block the the signal from being stolen. Um, so these are, you know, it's somewhat similar to what we would have experienced say 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, uh, the nature of the threat has changed and, and has become more technologically savvy.
0: Yeah. So, you know, as technology advances, so do those who, uh, who would seek to use it for their own purposes. Um, they, they also advance with it. So
1: correct. Um,
0: uh, is is there anything, uh, that you could see as, um, as a, as a criminal justice policy expert, uh, someone who covers this type of, uh, that covers this field, do you think there's anything that could have, that, that, that could have been done in addition to, I mean, any language that could have been added to this law where it could have been more effective, could they have gone any further?
1: Um, it's always a hard question because like we were talking about the reason why they would want to use reasonable, is because it needs to be flexible for the law to not be overly cumbersome but also to be able to evolve as, as technology and threats evolve into the future mm-hmm. but i do think probably where the the law could be expanded upon is to use encryption uh... there is an expert i spoke to at bain named sayed ali who was talking about the fact that iot manufacturers don't have a good control of their supply line and so what that means is that, at some point, a piece of their device could have what's called a backdoor put into it. Hmm. So regardless of the password on the device, that manufacturer would still have access into, into the device itself. And so if, however, the software required all the data on it to be encrypted, uh, both when it's being stored and while it's being uh, moved in transit, then having that backdoor would kind of be a moot point, or at least would make it more difficult for that manufacturer to have access to that data, regardless of the password situation. So, in thinking about where the law could evolve to, requiring encryption on these devices mm-hmm. uh, could be a component of it. There are some technological hurdles uh, to that being something easily applicable across devices, um, but certainly something to consider as the technology continues to evolve.
0: Hmm. Now, we know that any law is, is, is only as uh, effective as its enforcement. So when it comes to uh, IoT devices and, you know, this idea of, you know, if you're going to sell those devices in the U.S., they have to meet this security criteria. Uh, what does what does enforcement look like for that? And is there also the potential um, loophole of, of imported devices? Uh, and, of course, I know they could be, you know, domestically uh, produced, but is there a possibility for imported devices that don't meet that criteria. So how does enforcement look for that?
1: Sure. So this particular law gives enforcement to uh, state law enforcement. So everyone from the attorney general's office down to county and city level uh, prosecutors and city attorneys. So it's kind of an open question, however, to how that they will enforce it. Usually in things like this, the attorney general's office will issue some type of advisory or recommendation on how they're going to approach the uh, the enforcement of a law like this and we haven't seen that come out of the california attorney general's office yet mm-hmm. so that's something to keep an eye on uh, as far as this idea of importing uh, a tool or a, a device that doesn't have these basic password protections that the california law will require i'm not sure that's going to be the case i think when you talk to legislators in california they often point to the fact that since their market is so big when they pass a law like this mm-hmm. it basically becomes The law of the country at least as a floor Um, and they usually point to tailpipe emission standards when California passed those laws uh, companies like Ford and Chevy weren't going to make one set of cars for California and then one set of cars for everybody else and Mm -hmm. so you would uh, expect to see that if someone's going to sell devices in California then they will just apply the same standards to their devices around the country
0: all right. So it's not so much a real concern as far as state to state cooperation, um, but really just kind of following letting the market itself dictate uh, the policy.
1: Well, you do run the risk of uh, patchwork beginning to be created. As of right now, I believe this is the only law of its kind uh, regarding the security of IOT devices, mm-hmm. uh, but you could see a future where New York has a version, Texas has a version, Florida has a version, Illinois has a version, and then that's when things get messy. And yeah. <laughs> you would assume industry would begin to pressure Congress to pass a federal law to make a national standard. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, and speaking of that, so going back to the, to the federal, as far as enforcement is concerned, I go back to that, um, uh, to the computer uh, you mentioned it uh, just a, a few minutes ago, but as, as far as um, unauthorized access, you know, so on a federal level, how how the FBI is able to um, become involved and investigate. So that being the case federally uh, and this law being put in place in California uh, and, and how it distributes uh, enforcement When So there's really there really isn't anything in, in other states that would allow anybody other than the FBI to to come in and to um, uh, and to investigate or hold folks accountable. Is, is that correct?
1: No. So when I was talking about the FBI earlier, I was talking about criminal statutes at the federal level. Okay. And and how the FBI uh, can can charge and or the DOJ rather, the Department of Justice can can investigate, charge uh, and prosecute those types of of computer crimes. In the case of California's law—that that's a state level law. Right. Um, this isn't a criminal statute either. This is a, a standard set uh, in their civil code for industry. Okay. Um, and so the penalties would be civil as well, um, and that would all be handled by state law enforcement in the state of California.
0: Okay. All right. I got you. All right. Well, this is certainly uh, some interesting, interesting uh, stuff, and I'm I'm really interested to see how. Uh, other states are going to uh, respond if this is going to kind of set off a wave, uh, because, you know, if, if California, as you mentioned, if California being as big, having the big the market that it has uh, and the impact that it has when it comes to regulation, um, I'm, I'm interested to see if that's going to carry over uh, in places like, you know, Illinois, where I am. So that'll be something. So we thank you very much for the uh, for the for the insight. On this uh, law and IOT devices, uh, and I know when when uh, in your introduction I mentioned that you're also the uh, founder of Justice Codes. Could you tell us a bit about what what that uh, what that work entails?
1: Sure. So we are, are a nonprofit based in Baltimore City, Maryland, and we focus on building, implementing, and testing technology in the criminal justice space that is meant to work against. The history of mass incarceration and racial inequality in the criminal justice system. Mm.
0: Now how did that come about?
1: Um, Well my first job out of law school, well really my second job out of law school, was focused on juvenile justice reform in Maryland and Baltimore Mm -hmm. uh, where I was lobbying on a lot of policy issues and I felt like the work that we were doing to try to improve the laws to help these communities disproportionately impacted by the criminal justice system Weren't translating into the communities themselves, and I thought technology would be a means to improve that. And so the work really started on uh, a focus on what's called expungement or like an erasure of people's criminal records. Yeah. Uh, and we were we were passing these laws, we were expanding the statute, uh, but the communities impacted by over policing weren't necessarily uh, taking advantage of the the change laws. So we built some tools around. Uh, expungement to put the resources online to help people get through that process, uh, and then we replicated something like that in, in Mississippi as well for their access to justice commission. And uh, since then, we've we've expanded more uh, into looking at the I guess the ecosystem of justice tech more broadly. We run a website called JusticeTech.info where we collect data and technology projects. That look to impact the criminal justice system from around the country to just keep a sense of what's going on, how people are working on these issues, and and what their impact is.
0: Hmm. Now, I, I imagine that there is a uh, that there's an education process that goes along with um, off with with making those uh, uh, you know websites making technology accessible. Um, is that something that's done in tandem as you as you you know you set up a, a site that helps folks. Uh, work on expungement or is that is it kind of like a one then a number two uh, thing?
1: We, we've we historically partnered with organizations that are already working to do that educational piece mm-hmm. in the communities that they work with whether it's uh, librarians, the faith community, uh, those in legal aid uh, in, in the jurisdictions that we're building the tools for and so the hope is that the online tool bolsters or helps them scale the work that they're already doing. Um, but I, to your point it's critical you can't just build a new website, put it online and then expect anything to change. It needs to be tied to educa- education and community organizing.
0: All right. Well, this is uh this is great. Uh that's a great effort, uh much needed and yeah, yeah, continued uh success uh with that. Uh, Folks, our guest has been Jason uh, Jason Teche, uh legal affairs writer with the ABA, as well as the founder, director of Justice Codes, which you just heard about. And uh, one more time, give the Radio Islam family your social media, if you would mind.
1: Sure. So uh, my personal is uh, at, on, for Twitter, it's at J Tache J-T-A-S-H-E-A. And for the organization, we're at Justice Codes.
0: Okay. All right. Thank you very much. And uh, we're looking forward to talking to you again in the near future. Thank you. All right. All right, Radio Islam family. Uh, We are going to take a short, short break, but we will return. This is Radio Islam and we're on WCEV 1450 AM.